You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Satan, your kingdom must come down. Satan, your kingdom must come down. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Satan, your kingdom must come down. Hey everybody, this is Danny Anderson once again for the Sectarian Review Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Um, I hope your uh, spring is going well. Uh, we are recording this just after May Day, so it seems somewhat appropriate. Hey, May Day is my birthday, which is cool, but uh, but also this uh, essay is going to, uh, I think, coincide somewhat nicely with it. Uh, we're going to talk about some leftist politics yet again, um, and to do that, um, my favorite leftist is uh, C. Derek Varn, and he is uh, joining me again today uh, to talk about Mark Fisher's really uh, controversial and rather infamous essay, Exiting the Vampire Castle. Derek, how you doing, man? Hi. How are you doing? Um, I'm okay. I th- This essay is way more famous than me, and I'm part of how it got brought into the world, and I resent the ever-living, you can delete the appropriate expletive here out of that. Um... <laughs> Because uh, this this essay kind of – I'm really not dram- dramatizing this. This essay destroyed lives. Um, and not about what its content is. Its content is really uh, – I think actually in some ways too tame and in some ways even too nice. Mm. Um, and it's, its ultimate political conclusions are really milk toast. Um, but m- – Mark Fisher hit on an anxiety in 2013 when he wrote this that only got worse for him. It played into his personal oppression. Um, The controversies that led to uh, me working at the North Star um, and all that ties into this. And I had a brief interlude remark that lasted, you know, a correspondence that lasted about two years before he kind of went off the radar and then we discovered last year mm. that he had killed himself. So, um, this is a pressing story and the, it's not just his story in it. That's depressing. It's also, um, the other person that commissioned this, uh, uh, um, article with me, um, has never released his name. Um, and I'm still not going to do so. Um, but, um, he, he ended up becoming a pretty far right winger, um, and uh, another person uh, who was involved with this, who defended this essay and an essay in print after it was published, um, Michael Wettenrog, is now a regular in C- Tuckle Carson and um, <laughs> um, is a staunch anti-leftist, um, yeah. anti-liberal. Uh, so you know, two two of the two of the five people who commissioned this thing are are no longer anywhere on the left. So, well, and you have a famously contentious relationship with other leftists yourself, right? <laughs> well, in so much that I am famous at all, um, it'd be famously contentious. Although apparently, I have a lot more street cred these days than I used to. <laughs> um, uh, although, I mean, I picked a fight this morning, so we'll see how that long that lasts. Um, <laughs> 
Yeah, if you don't, uh, Derek's Facebook page is is an endless uh, <laughs> array of uh, of entertaining uh, back and forth. I, I, there, it's not uncommon for you to have literally three or four hundred <laughs> responses to something that you you type, uh, and it seems like these little thoughts just come to your head and. 500 comments later uh the conversation's still going on and and usually within a few comments it kind of resorts to this leftist shorthand and people are just it's almost like they're using sign language to talk to each other and someone who's not in the click has no idea what anybody's even talking about and so they're just sort of dropping names and terms and references to tankies and maoists and whatever <laughs> and uh, and so far and so far as uh yeah. i can tell i don't even know what's going on it's it's a really odd mix of of high and low culture where like we'll make meme references one minute and then be referencing this obscure event in like 1957 where somebody so and so said so and so in this paper over here about this other group that no one knows about yeah. and um, <laughs> yeah it, we live up to the stereotype of contentious and fighting like this that's completely true yeah um, I called you a circular firing squad recently on the show and uh, <laughs> I stand by that. <laughs> <laughs> so a circular filing squad is a lot more efficient than what we actually do. <laughs> That's a good point. Right? Uh, <laughs> I still love uh, you guys though. So yeah. Um, well, let's uh, just as a little background, I am going to provide links to um, the original essay exiting the vampire castle by Mark Fisher. That was published in the North star. Uh, and also a link to a piece that you wrote about four or five days later uh, in response to the essay because it immediately – I mean, if you print this essay out, Mark Fisher's original essay, um, the essay itself is like five or six pages printed. And the the document is 45 pages because of comments that are just, you know, immediately go into dark places, right, almost proving his point. Uh, and so uh, you wrote uh, – it, it was an immediately – uh, in inciting incident and you wrote a, uh, a really nice response to it. I'll provide links to both of those in the show notes here. Um, before we get sort of into this though, just kind of let the listener know where we're going. A little bit of background on Mark Fisher, a little bit of background about the exigence of this particular essay. We'll talk about the essay and its mechanics and, and its arguments, and then uh, we'll get into the blowback and the controversy and sort of the aftermath of it. But um, first, you want Mark Fisher is a pretty famous, you work for Zero Book, and Mark Fisher's the author of probably their most famous book, Capitalist Realism. And he's a very important uh, figure in uh, contemporary leftist uh, discourse. You want to tell us a little bit about him? So Mark Fisher is famous primarily for writing the blog K-Punk. Um, he, he's also sort of infamous for being related to uh, a, another theorist called Nick Land. Um. He was a co-founder of Zero Books, so I technically worked for his publication, although he had nothing to do with me being hired. And I did not have anything to do with Zero Books when I commissioned this um, – co-commissioned this this essay from him. Um, so the backstory to this is that um, – well – let me go a little bit more into Mark. Mark um, wrote Capitalist Realism in 2009. Um, he was the most famous of a coterie of writers around uh, first Zero Books, then Repeater Books, which he co-founded, although he kind of helped um, Douglas Lane um, get his job as Zero Books. And it's a little bit more complicated than, than that, but... Um, he did that, 
he was also a student of the infamous Nick Land, who is the, the uh, a predecessor of a particular form of alt right that's that's really hard to categorize, um, called neo reactionaryism and dark enlightenment thought. Um, it's postmodern. It's involves face tentacles. I'm, okay. I'm not exaggerating really actually even. Okay. Um, so, uh, and, uh, he was educated, um, at university of Warwick, got his PhD. Uh, he was, he was a part of a, a, a collective, um, that Nick land was in, um, he, he did a lot of stuff actually, initially on speculative realism um and while people think of him as a marxist he's actually not in an interview that he did shortly after this piece was written he made it clear that he would that he saw himself as a socialist but not a marxist and he rejected the marx marxist definition of what working class was um which is which i actually do think is problematic for this essay um and uh he suffered from depression his from what i can tell his whole life um he had bouts with other leftists over identity issues that had led to things like people calling the english equivalent of social services on his kids Mm. to get at him um i i don't know who did it but i know it happened twice and somebody was bragging about it on on various left twitter worlds um that it had something to do with his politics uh a lot of people this essay was a lot more maligned when it came out than it is now it has been kind of referenced positively by jacobin by sam chris who denounced it in the north star when it came out Although he says differently, although Sam Chris doesn't matter anymore because he's his own scandal taking him out. <laughs> I mean, what is amazing about this piece is almost everyone around it, with the exception of Jody Dean and myself, is no longer part of the left, either because they've committed some kind of grievous social sin or because they have abandoned the idea of left wing liberation entirely. Mm um yeah a, a little bit of other background um i've recently you know some podcasts that i listen to regularly have kind of um touched on this essay or fisher's work in general i just want to kind of point you to dead pundit society i think early on they he talks a lot about um adam i forget his last name he talks about um uh essentialism uh, and leftist politics a lot and so i think he references at least implicitly if not explicitly this essay quite a bit and uh revolutionary left radio actually recently had uh an episode about um capitalist realism a really nice conversation about that book so if you're interested in a little bit more background there there are other podcasts you can go to that um have uh, have talked about this as well but, yeah um i don't uh, know the guy from revolutionary rough radio except we both appealed on a partially examined life episode together um, I have no dirt on him. And Adam Proctor and I, Proctor, that's um, um, you would think would get along. We share a lot of political valences, but um, we don't. I, so. I don't expect anybody on the left to get along, actually, so it's okay. Um, <laughs> so uh, that's okay. Um, I mean, we're not like enemies or anything, but it's just, you know, um, we, we have had words with each other. He says I'm a, a pompous intellect, basically, and I was like, well, you know. You're Gramscian, so who cares? (laughs) 
Those Graham chins, I tell you. Um, so, okay. Well, let's move on to this essay as well. I don't want to get this show mired in these debates as well. Um, I'm sort of, uh, yeah, but whatever. I want to. I'm a. I'm a big tent show, you asked, as you know. You asked for it. <laughs> I did. I bring you, you on. You're, you picked the most contentious essay probably in thirty in like. <laughs> Six years. Well, I got to say, there's a few reasons I'm interested in this essay. I, I wrote down like four of them. Um, one is I, as you and I have gone back and forth. You were on a show here, one of an earlier episode where we talked about scandal of the evangelical mind, and we went mm-hmm. to great lengths to draw comparisons between you know evangelicalism and uh, and sort of the patterns of evangelicalism with political thought, like liberalism particularly, right? And so I am mm-hmm. really interested in these parallels that you see. Um, in uh, in Christian culture, you sort of seeing it, and I guess this is what Nietzsche was getting at. You see it played out in uh, in post Christian culture as well in in, po- in po- politics, and so um, that's a topic that's interesting to me. I'm interested in the way that social media has a sort of shaping influence on uh, our imaginations about how we can even have conversations, mm-hmm. um, and I'm interested in the way that dissent gets sort of co opted into uh, the the power struct existing power structures and it's one of the things that he argues in this essay um, and finally I'm always on a quest for limited uh, uh, what am I looking for like coalitions I guess uh, between you know groups that have some degree of common interest. Uh, they're not going to agree on everything. And so uh, this is why I sort of uh, uh, am, am drawn to this essay because he's calling for a, a similar sort of thing at points, I think. Um, and so the moralizing um, on this identity politics left that he's talking about in this essay gets in the way of that, I think. Uh, and so there's a few reasons I'm personally interested in this essay. I like you and I like having you on for any chance uh, I get uh, to have you on. And by the way, uh, we're going to, after the uh, after the show's done taping we're going to set up a uh, a time to uh, to discuss uh having derek on he has a book of poetry actually and so uh, mm. we're going to talk about his poetry here in a few weeks as well so be looking forward to that so um accolades for you um notwithstanding let's talk a little bit more about the background of this essay so what's going on that caused mark fisher to write this particular essay so I don't know entirely know exactly what the particular events triggered it. I know some of it was a lot of the left wing identity issues thrown at Russell Brand. Um, now that's going to seem completely a foreign to the American context anyway, and b in retrospect so milk toast and hopeless that it seems a little bit like a waste of time. Um, but Russell Brand's stances on identity weren't perfect, and so I know that this was part of it. The other thing that was a large part of it is my friend, who I'm going to call Pavel. It's not his name, but that's that's what he edited under. And a lot of people actually, as a side note, believed he was me. <laughs> okay. He's not. He lived in Britain. We're not the same person. He's he's a rightist now. He still exists. Um, I won't give you any more details about him, but Pavel and Mark had met after Occupy London. And I don't really know the context, but they were talking about this milieu we were coming out of. Um, Pavel and I had also been the last man standing at the collapse of North Star. So North Star was this uh, project ostensibly started by Fam being um, after Occupy. Now, later we were to learn that Louis Project, Project, I think is his name, Louis Project, who's the guy who does the Unrepentant Marxist blog and a lot of other stuff, he's an old SWP supporter and 
kind of an old Marxist. And when I say old Marxist, I mean really old Marxist, like 40. Um. <laughs> uh, no, I mean like 60 or 70. Um, oh, okay. He's a 68er and he gave a lot of his money to the SW, the USSWP in the seventies. Um, anyway, he, this was a this was kind of a front for him. He was actually funding the project, and we did not know that when we took it over and took it from him. So we immediately made enemies. Um, the site was getting um, denial of service bombed like constantly when we were running it. And this was right after Occupy, and I had said some critical things about Occupy, as had Pavel, and the particularly over lifestyle issues having a lot to do with tensions between the homosexual community and the Muslim community in the British left. Um, Pavel was talking to Mark at Mark to, to kind of, to do for um, the left what Nick Land had done for the right, which Nick Land came up with this nebulous concept of the cathedral. Um, really actually took it from from 1930s and 40s anthropology, but anyway, and the vampire castle was, you know, with its, with its five rules, um, was supposed to do that. We were supposed to talk about the way that certain kinds of identitarian politics have made solidarity nearly impossible. Now, um, what immediately happened was uh, Sam, we had the 42 pages of comments. Um, We then had uh, two British based leftists go after Mark, some from which for his personal associations with Nick land when he was getting his education and for the stylistic similarities, um, which were deliberate. I mean, that, that was a little bit fair, but we were we weren't trying to move everything right wing so much as give ourselves a metaphor that was as um, useful as the one some of the ones the right wing had. Um, uh, Sam Chris wrote a response that was very condemning. I wrote a response that sort of split the difference that acknowledged that I think Mark may have not been from a from a Marxist perspective very materialist about this that he didn't really have it and um, later on I would critique it even more that I would say he didn't really have a materialist understanding of what it meant to be working class that it was like a British like a semi-feudal conception that he had of something you're born into um, and I don't share that with him. Um, it's one thing that I think he likes about brand, um, is that brand comes is like sort of born into that. Um, right. Yeah. Right. So brand's born in the working class. So he's forever working class where a Marxist goes, no, he's not. He's, he's petty bourgeois. What you do is what you are. Yeah. Um, and we actually went back and forth about this and he went back and forth with Douglas Lane about this on an interview where he actually explicitly stated he wasn't a Marxist and he was more out of the postmodern thought, um, which makes some of his fans now a little, a little ironic. Um, the stuff that he was talking about, I mean, there are, for example, if you go through his rules, I'm going to read the rules out real fast because they're interesting. So if you're in the vampire castle, there are four rules. Individualize and privatize everything. 
privilege, for example, and we, we talked about this. I agree with him about this. Privilege, for example, privatizes a systemic concern and makes it about your response to a system, not the system itself. Yeah. All right. So that was one of the things that we had, but I had been dealing with too. And I thought he even said it simply. While Make in theory, thought- while in theory, it claims to be in favor of structural critique. In practice, it never focuses on anything except individual behavior, right? And so you have this uh, kind of moralizing left then, rather than uh, you know a uh, a more traditionally Marxist one. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Two, uh, second law, the, the law of the vampire scaffold makes thought and action pill very, very difficult. There must be no white, no whiteness and no humor by definition. Everything is hard work with posh voices and posh brows. Um, where there is confidence, introduce skepticism and all this, um, and say convention might lead to gulags. Yeah, <laughs> I this I thought was 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 anti intellectual on his part. Um, it's a funny joke though. Remember, having convictions is oppressive and might lead to gulags. That's <laughs> funny. It's a good line. Proper uh, third love vampires here. Promote as much guilt as you can. Um, fourth law of the vampires castle is essentialize are what some of the post-colonialists would call strategic essentialization. So essentialize sometimes de-essentialize others. Mm. Um, and the fifth law is think, think like a liberal because you are one. Um, repressive state apparatuses are repressive. Capital behaves like capital. It's not very much. We must protest, et cetera, and so forth. Yeah. Um, this very day, by the way, I actually wrote on an article. I co-wrote an article with a, with a collective of making fun of the idea that everything is liberal and that this is bad because everything is liberal. So, like, yeah, every, you are one. Also, Mark Fisher was one in many ways. Um, and so, you know, the, and I think these these rules are um, – are real and into the extent that they actually happen, um, that the tendency towards character assassination was very tiring. Um, uh, I, I do not find it, it, it in the least surprising that the people around the DSA and Chapo Chap House really like this essay. Um, hmm. And conversely, so do people like Jody Dean who are basically, Stalinist. <laughs> so, yeah. um, I thought most of the essay was was interesting in that I saw everything he was describing. Um, I'd seen people run out on the rails. I personally, but right before this happened, some part of the context for why this was really, um, to, really important to me is like when someone got mad at me once, they called me a race realist, and then a year after this came out. I got disowned for being a transphobe um, for some reason or another. I, 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 ac- I accidentally misgendered somebody who I knew and who had changed the gender they identified with. And I did not know that. Hmm. Uh, um, and uh, I got kind of upset about that and that got me denounced. And so I've seen all this and it's gone in waves. The thing is what he's describing, we, we feel like it's very new and we see it on social media and social media particularly encourages it because social media likes shaming. Yeah. Shaming is something social media is very good at. And it doesn't, it's not just on these left wing issues where you see it. Hmm. Um, 
And so I think that's true. But I mean, the the camp, the dynamics of guilt, uh, strategic essentialization, and all that that all comes out of left wing thought as early as the is the eighties and nineties. I mean, like this is not remotely new. Um, the reason why it feels vital is it doesn't ever go away. Yeah. Um. And the anti SJW right. Um. Again, which one of the people who defended that, who wrote a defense of this, ended up moving from uh, what we would call left communist to anti SJW rightist um, after this essay came out? I mean, so like there was a whole lot going on, and, um, I, and I could see how a person who is sort of anti SJW is going to gravitate towards this as sort of evidence for what they're talking about. And and you're right, the things he's describing are not untrue, right? These things are actually happening, right? And there is a rather, I mean, it's a stupidity that that uh, I think he's correct in um, in identifying. Now you have other. Uh, you know, complaints about the essay, but I can, I mean, yeah, I do, yeah. but I, 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 I'm really hesitant. It's, it's hard to speak objectively about now because he's dead. Right. Um, and I mean, even Sam Chris was eulogizing him as I'm like apologized, uh, apparently to, to, to Mark and, and directly to me and the editors of North star for what he said at the time. Um, and then three months later had his own scandal for which he was chased off of the left and doesn't seem to do anything anymore. Mm. Um, uh, involving, I think as a me too incident. Um, I don't really know the parameters of it and I don't want to shame anyone involved, but I do know that he shortly after he made that apology (laughs) that he sort of was no longer cool either. Mm. Um, so, um, you know, my, my, my instances with Fisher is that I think Fisher's right that one of the things about left-wing culture is that it's parasitic upon itself. It has a barracks mentality and in barracks mentality. I mean, this is something I don't think he actually explores about. He seems to think this, this happens for voluntaristic reasons, that we're liberals and it's bad faith. And one of the things that I even more now than I did at the time thought about it is no, is we don't have any power and the only power we can manifest is policing ourselves, which is why this happens when you don't have any social power. The illusion of social, the the illusion of power that you can get is by otherizing someone. And the only people we can otherize effectively are each other. Yeah. I mean, you see this in cults when they turn sour, you see it in, you, you see it in evangelical circles as evangelicals have lost social power. It's, yeah. it's, it's something that is common. Yeah. Um, there's a line later in the essay. Um, the bourgeois identitarian left knows how to propagate guilt and conduct a witch hunt, but it doesn't know how to make converts. This is what's reminding me of what you're talking about. There's a really clear parallel to sort of church life. Um, but that, after all, is not the point. The aim is to popularize a leftist position or to win people over to it. Or, excuse me. Uh, the aim is not to popularize a leftist position or to win people over to it, but to remain in a position of elite superiority 
but now with class superiority redoubled by moral superiority too, how dare you talk? It is we who speak for those who suffer, right? And so the, um, mm-hmm. the, the language very much is a like religious tone to it. There's a religiosity to what he's describing, and I think he's right in describing that. I, whenever I'm watching these debates from kind of the margins of, of these debates, I never get involved because I, frankly, like I said, I can't. I don't know the gang signs, right? And so, um, but, and so when I'm, uh, watching these debates, what I'm reminded of is every little debate within Christianity that I've ever seen growing up, right? It, it, yeah. Like, are you an Armenian Baptist or a Calvinistic I, I, Baptist? Absolutely. And if you are, do you, do you hold to this and should there be a filiquae or no filiquae? Yeah. Well, and then it becomes personal on top of that because, you know, if you sort of, are anti-Calvinist, then you start creating these caricatures of Calvinists. And so now the big sort of internet shorthand joke for dismissing Calvinist jokes or Calvinist people is that, oh, they're big bearded guys hanging out in Panera Bread, you know, white guy, you know. And so uh, they, they have this like uh, cultural shorthand that very much looks like the cultural shorthand yeah. that's the that's identi- sectarian in nature, I guess. This is the sectarian review. Yeah. It is sectarian in nature, and it's not new. I mean, Hal Draper was describing this as early as the middle of the 60s. Mm. The sectarian nature of the left uh, towards the the end of World War II, the fact that the new communist movement, for example, started breaking apart on these identitarian issues. But one of the things that I don't think – I think there's a couple of points that – that Fisher hits on that he's completely right about. I mean he talks about capitalist realism dominating their lives – but I'm going to also be honest. In some ways, Fisher's a little bit deluded in that it dominated his entire life, too. Mm. He was born in the late 60s. He doesn't remember a time when there was a real viable alternative to capitalism because it was clear to a lot of people that neither Maoism nor um, the Soviet Union would have been particularly persuasive by the time he was 20. So, I mean, I, I also don't – I tend to think that that argument is a little weak. But he, he's right that one of the weird things about, you know, this neo-anarchist, what he calls neo-anarchism, that's what defined Occupy to you. And we got to remember that. Our, our, our Occupy was a largely liberal and anarchistic movement. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Shri Sankara, I mean, Shankara, yeah, of, of Jacobin fame now – was one of his first pieces in democracy, um, in the journal Democracy, or no, in Journal Dissent, was talking about anarcho-liberalism and the court of moralistic. But what they failed to see in that is that that's that's older than the neoliberals, I think, and the neo neoliberals, the neo-anarchists that he's talking about, and that. It's not as new. I mean, he was talking about everyone involved in this is super young, and they're all in their early at, at most their 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 early thirties, and they're you know. And I was in my early thirties when I commissioned to write this, so yeah. you know. But I was also I also laugh because like I remembered this in the nineties too. Um, you were in college in the nineties. You, you remember the first two rounds of like the feminist wars and oh sure yeah. And all that. I mean, that's not the, – these aren't new. They're recurring patterns that have happened. What the difference now is that they're not confined to campus culture. Mm. 
social media has brought that out and so now it's like a you hear it as a joke amongst high school students even which you would never they would have never been exposed to that when i was um you know when i first started college and i'm not that old yeah um can we back up just uh, by way of definition for people who you know like me don't know the the shorthand the lingo right um so Capitalist Realism is an entire, it's a short book, but it's a book that he wrote. Just can you quickly kind of give us a summary of what he means by that term? Um, sure. I will try to. F- Capitalist Realism, as I understand it, cannot be confined, and this is a quote from the book, cannot be confined to art or quasi propagandist way in which advertising functions. It is more like a pervasive atmosphere, conditioning not only the production of culture, but the regulation of work and education and the kind of invisible barrier constraining thought and action. It is a kind of ideology um, that he says he's quoting someone, he's quoting Jameson quoting, uh, Frederick Jameson quoting someone, by the way. Right, right. Um, but the, it is easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism after 1992. Right. Yeah, it's just sort of the, it's an assumption about, it's almost like, well, like, I don't want to say that, but uh, it's there's it's an assumption about this sort of natural state of the world, right? And, and mm-hmm. there is no way to imagine um, a, a organizational structure an economic political organizational structure that is not what we already have right and so even therefore any kind of dissent against it just kind of further propagates it right um, almost like now, yeah yeah i mean i i actually totally think that that uh i don't i don't know how familiar mark i mean i know he's a little bit familiar with the frankfurt school but i mean like he sounds like adorno here except yeah. adorno's operating 40 years earlier right and on a completely different media landscape too. So yeah, this isn't a new thought that comes up on the left wing, and it's it's one where all possibilities seem chastened and thus impossible. Yeah. And one of the things that haunts me about the way Marx's depression seemed to either be fed by dealing with this, or I mean, as he dealt with this more and more, his depression got worse and worse. In the last right. three years, when he was working on the Strange in the Area book that was published after his death he seems to have felt completely constrained and that he couldn't also himself see anything beyond capitalism. And I mean, I think when you look at, you know, his rhetoric here is very much, you could see almost any Marxist saying it, but one of the weird ironies, and this is something I couldn't defend when he wrote it, is that, you know, he's talking about Russell Brand, talking about the British equivalent of something like Corbyn or Bernie Sanders. It's actually not terribly radical. Yeah. It's 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 old laborism. Yeah. Um, And so, like, in a way, I mean, Doug Lane and I have talked about this privately, but and maybe I'm going to get in trouble for outing this on air. But we both said that one of the ironies of Mark Fisher's life is he was just as much affected by capitalist realism as anybody he was writing about. He he also couldn't see any way beyond it, and most of what he saw as ways out were mild forays into being mildly more popular amongst people who seem to have a cultural notion of the working class. Mm -hmm. Um, And for those of us who come from a more, uh, uh, you know, who come out of more profoundly Marxist thought, um, the culture of your birth is important, but, it doesn't set who you are, what you, how you make your living sets 
who you are. Yeah. And it's some, uh, going back to what you just said about his sort of, um, where he stands in terms of politics. He says at one point in here in criticizing this neo-anarchism, but the problem with neo-anarchism is that it unthinkingly reflects this historical moment rather than offering any escape from it. It forgets, or perhaps is genuinely unaware of, the Labor Party's role in nationalizing major industries or utilities or founding the NHS, the National Health Service. Um, Neo-anarchists will assert that, quote, parliamentary politics never changed anything or, quote, the Labor Party was always useless um, when he states that it wasn't. He's like pointing backwards two times when um, liberal institutions actually did good things. Right. And so you do see a sense of um, what you're describing there, I think, in terms of his own kind of imagination. Right, but he seems to think that this is all bad faith and like a neoliberal conspiracy as to why this happened. And he, as I in my critique when I talk about you know like I don't I actually one of the weird the weird leftists is I hate the way intersectionality is used on the internet. I hate it as a buzzword, but it's critical. It's critical point that Kimberly Kinshaw came up from 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 uh from from legal theory is that there are separate spheres of of oppression and they really are systemic and they really are not actually the same thing. Yeah. So like. Race has a relationship to capitalism and modernity, but it isn't the same thing as that. It's also tied to older forms of thinking that have to do with ethnicism. Um, social, there's a social reproduction theory, which is a theory and kind of neo-Marxism right now to throw a bunch of words that are alienate your listeners. But that's, you know, that you, that our, gen, our gendered relationships have to do with the production of capitalism. You know, some of that's true. Some of that's not true. I mean, the idea that our notions of marriage, our family come out of capitalism alone, just kind of is a historical. Mm. Um, the, the family being nuclear is maybe probably a specific capitalist function, but the, uh, other things are not. I mean, um, so... In, in those areas, you have systems that emerge kind of concurrently and reinforce each other, but aren't the same thing. Mm-hmm. And there's a danger in in what Fisher is talking about, where he pretty much says class is dominant, but I don't have a materialist notion of what it is. It's an it's something you, you can be born into. And then these other things are competing things that break down solidarity. And oh, all we do have to do is go back to the old way and give it one more try. Right. Well, well, here's the thing. It ignores why that stuff failed. Mm-hmm. It's like talking about Keynesian economic policy while ignoring that stagflation actually happened. Yeah, in the 70s, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, it, and I hear people try to do this, try to, like, say that, it, that that was never an issue. And I was like, no, all it took was one resource, one resource scarcity to, to, to invoke that. What, you know, like... So you can't – and also Keynesianism was predicated on a kind of largesse that was only possible after the exploitation of war when the country that was doing it also did not get touched by that war. Right. So it didn't lose any of its own capital Right. or very little of it. So those things are not discussed in, in Fisher. They're ignored and it's seen as purely a voluntaristic – thing this essay does read like a a a polemic right it reads like somebody's a polemic yeah Yeah. he's screaming at somebody right and so it doesn't seem like it's i don't know that he meant to take the time to have a full kind of account of what you're asking for there um but but you're totally right also not in his books 
Oh, okay. <laughs> well, that's I mean, like I, I, I've read <laughs> the Ghost enough. of My Life. I've read the We're in the Ear, and I've read Capitalist Realism. I mean, I work for the press he helped found. Yeah. He and Torak Ramadan founded Zero Books. I am one of their readers now, even though I have nothing to do with Tariq. And I had long discussions with Fisher about these issues before in letters before he died. I've never physically met him. Yeah. Um, my like my friend Pavel has, but um, no, this is a polemic. But but the, the systemic problems that he sees is just if we can just. I mean, it's basically the Bernie Sanders campaign. Yeah. It um, does feel like that. You're right. Um, that's why it reminded me of the kind of the what the current. Well, it's maybe about a year ago, right after Trump's election, all of that consternation from establishment Democrats versus the quote unquote progressive Democrats. Um, and this, it very much reminded me of this essay. And, you know, you have this class versus identity politics debate that, um, this feels like predicted almost exactly in the American context four years later. Right. And well, I mean, it was kind of true in, uh, in the British context, and and to the Fisher's defense, the idea of class being something that you're born into makes sense in Britain more than it would the rest of the capitalist world, because Britain true. is still a semi-feudal society. That's true. Yeah. I mean, weirdly, it's also the birthplace of capitalism, but yeah. <laughs> or one of three of them, depending on which theory you buy into. But I mean, like, it is still like the the richest the richest person in England is a feudal landholder, and mm-hmm. it's not even the Queen. So like. Yeah. Um, that's something that we, we we critique Mark on this. We have to be fair about that's true for him. Yeah. Um, for us in America, it makes a lot of sense, and it kind of predicted the Bernie Sanders was a Hillary Clinton thing accurately. I mean, but the funny thing is about that is that when you when you when you look at Clinton, though Clinton's not really a neo anarchist. Clinton just picked up on that language because it was it was a way of cover. If you read like. If you read someone like Ta-Nehisi Coach, who I actually like argue with online, not I don't know him, so I'm arguing by myself, really. But <laughs> like I, um, I argue with his. I've written all kinds of stuff about old man yells at cloud. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um, <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, that's fine. Um, <laughs> Just reminding me of that meme. Um. <laughs> I remind a lot of people of that meme. Um, the fact that it comes up on my raw fairly regularly. <laughs> But the thing that Coach said that I thought was particularly astute and honest in his uh, Trump, the first white president, which I was an essay that shocked me, not in a good way. Yeah. But that he said, one, working class whites aren't relevant to the discussion because they largely don't vote. So quit blaming it on them. They didn't do anything, which is true. I've been saying that for forever. Right. Um, I mean, I think I said it on your show shortly after the election. I'm sure you did. Yeah. <laughs> I think um, I think you remember that. Um, the other thing that. Tanahishi coach is the reason why we were more we wanted Clinton more than Sanders in a lot of ways is Clinton had had blood on our hands and we could basically blackmail her with it. Mm. I mean that is not he didn't say that outright, but that's what he implied. He implied that Clinton had more to prove because of her relationship to Bill Clinton's legacy and Bill Clinton's relationship to ending welfare and ex- and expanding mandatory minimums. And so we could hold that guilt over her. Mm. To, to, to get her to comply more because we're we were a marginal end of the of the electoral base that is absolutely necessary and that is not true for Sanders. Okay. So in that sense, Fisher was prescient. Yeah. Um, completely. Yeah. But he also had the same thing that San, that Sanders has. I, my suspicion is that one of the reasons why people get mad at this is they suspect that they are far that 
they are far too optimistic about why stuff like the new communist movement started abandoning working class issues about you know the way race issues actually race issues stopped the the south from being unionized mm-hmm. um and it was played very you know the AFL-CIO didn't even apologize for it i think until 2014 it was after that the, the fisher essay was written those things cannot be ignored for why we are where we are now. It is not just the bad faith of some petite bourgeois vampires. Yeah. Let me, so let's set this up again. Um, so there is this kind of traditional, you know, labor left, as you say, um, view of leftism. And, and Fisher at one point explicitly defines the left for us. And he says, by opposition against this vampire castle, they call themselves left wing. But as the brand episode has made clear, they are uh, many ways a sign that the left, which is defined as an agent in a class struggle, has all but disappeared. And so he utterly defines the left as only interested in these class issues, which you rightly point out, he associates by kind of just birthright, right? Not by the actual, mm-hmm. you know, economic nature of Russell Brand's life, right? Uh, as it developed. And so, um, and he, that's um, as, so that kind of traditional class-based politics, I think you call it workerism uh, a lot. Yeah, uh, I yeah. do. It, yeah. It's, 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 it's um, workerism is this idea that the workers are somehow innately noble because they're workers and that we, you know, they have a special identity and it's just to me the problem with it is that this is going to sound strange to your non-initiated listener so i'm going to try to speak in normie talk (laughs) um class is not an identity that you just have like gender or race and gender is more complicated because apparently you can just have it but um but race is not something that that you change through the circumstances of your life by what you do. You don't, right, you right. don't, you don't do something to become white. All right. Um, race, even if you accept that our notions of race are socially constructed, um, it, you don't, it's beyond your control in a very real way. So in a way it makes a sense as a, for, for, for a sort of liberal ideology to see that as a primary source of victimhood. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cause you can't change it. But in another way, you know, positing class issues as an identity forgets that. And this Fisher didn't Fisher rejected Marxism on this grounds. Cause what we said, the goal of, of the left as we understand it is class struggle to end class itself. Mm. It is not just to make the workers a little better. It is to do away with the categories, the abolition of an identity type. Yeah. It is not the embrace of an identity that type. That he holds kind of sacred. Yeah, and he holds it sacred. And we are just like, uh-uh, no. Uh, and, and we actually had this debate with Fisher, I mean, when he was still alive. And like Fisher said flat out, I'm not a Marxist. Now, a lot of people who like them see themselves as Marxists. They see themselves like social democratic Marxists or uh, democratic socialist Marxists, if that nomenclature matters to you. Like, Apparently, it does to some people. You're, you're sort of Bernie Sanders type, right? You're, you're, yeah, you're Jacobin I mean, like, magazine. We are social democrat. 
And sometimes that means they're to the right of the Social Democrats. Sometimes that means to the left. It doesn't really matter to me. I'm not going to try to figure that out or explain it to your audience because <laughs> I don't even know. But um, the, the, the issue that, that we have here is uh, that that definition of class, you know, yeah, I, I do think your formative experiences define a lot about who you are. But if I own a business – by, by any Marxist category, I'm bourgeois. The fact that I was born working class does not change that. Yeah. And I also think that shows up in a little bit in Fisher's politics. I think Fisher's, Fisher's critique of identitarianism feels radical. And it is in some ways. Yeah. And yet, it's not as radical. I mean, like the Russell Brand thing, people read this essay now and they ignore that part of it. They basically get to the five rules and then cut it off. Yeah. Because it feels embarrassing. Yeah. Can I play a clip of that? Uh, I actually, I I queued it up. He's talking about, he's very inspired by this BBC interview that Russell Brand did with Jeremy Paxson or excuse me, Paxman. Um, And Paxman is sort of pushing him on this kind of, Oh, I guess, anti-establishment politics let's call it to placate Derek here um, and so uh, just I want to play a few minutes of it and and what uh, Fisher is ultimately really impressed about is here's a working class guy as you say who I mean born working class who kind of holds his own intellectually with um, the establishment rather than just sort of being snotty in the face of the establishment. And he, and he's kind of uh, inspired by this moment. And then we'll get into what happened later after that. But here's a, a little clip from this, uh, this essay. To taking the EU to court because they're trying to curtail uh, bank bonuses. Is that what's happening at the moment in our country? It is, isn't it? Yeah, there is so what am I going to tune in for that? You don't believe in democracy. No, you want a revolution, don't you? The planet is being destroyed. We are creating an underclass. We are exploiting poor people all over the world. And the genuine, legitimate problems of the people are not being addressed by our political class. All of those things may be true. They are true. But you took... I wouldn't argue with you about many of them. Well, how come I feel so cross with you? It can't just be because of that beard. It's gorgeous. It's possibly because... And if the Daily Mail don't want it, I do. I'm against them. Grow it longer. You are Tangle a- it into your armpit hair. You are a very trivial man. <laughs> what do you think? I am trivial. Yes. A, so a little bit of a, a taste of that interview. Um, and Brand is like surprisingly serious uh, during it uh, for much of it. But uh, this is very impressive uh, to him. And it's kind of in- it's a source of inspiration for him at the, at the moment when it happened. And then Russell Brand. I, I really don't even know the context. He, uh, I mean, you know, he's Russell Brand. And so he had some sort of um, run in with this identitarian form of the leftism about his treatment is his interactions with women, I think. Uh, and then so he sort of uh, tries to say, well, you're missing the bigger point here. Um, and so this is kind of what seems to be the exigence for the entire essay is that his, he's running to the defense of this working class hero who's able to stand up and speak truth to establishment power. And it looks silly to you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Why? <laughs> because he's not. Okay. Because, I mean, like, it's one form of establishment talking to another form of establishment. You have a cultural celebrity okay. talking to another, another basically cultural celebrity in a way that's going to get ratings. Brand may have paved the way for Corbynism, although I doubt that. I really think what paved the way for Corbynism was the unli- other incompetence of new labor. Mm. But even Corbynism has limits because you have to recognize the economy that which Britain now subsists in. Britain 
is a banker's economy. If it tried to move to manufacturing as this primary source of, of of how to sustain itself and thus the kind of politics that would go with the old labor with it, it won't last very long. Okay. It doesn't exist anymore. You can automate and replace those people with robots. Yeah. And it's not just political wills why you do it. I mean, there's no reason to have everyone working in shit. Um, uh, you might have to edit that. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I forgot I'm on the Christian podcast. Um, and, and bad jobs because they need a job. And you can unionize those jobs more easily. The, the service sectors is, is you can unionize it, and it's we're, people are beginning to figure out a way to. But it's much harder to to coordinate it. Um, and it makes sense because it's a thousand little sites as opposed to as opposed to a couple of massive big ones that you can shut down in a strike. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if you look at strikes, the strikes that are successful are in credentialed areas of the economy, so they're places where workers, by law, are harder to replace. And I'm not saying that's that's bad, and that we shouldn't support the teacher strikes. I'm a teacher, of course. I wouldn't think we should. Yeah. Of course, I think we should support them. They're getting closer but, to you out there too. Um. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, but at the same notion, we have to realize that that model is not going to work for for other areas of the economy. And the reason why, say, teachers or nurses are more radical right now than say, you know, McDonald's workers, is it's hard for people to scab on us. Right, because, yeah, you have to have a license to teach, right? You have to have a license to do it. Yeah. And the state would have to change its laws, and the state, the state has trouble making any decisions very quickly in the United States right now. They couldn't just do it. So – and the same is true with nursing. And so we, we actually are in a, a place where we can advocate for things that other sectors can't. Mm-hmm. And I don't think brands politics really deals with that. And I don't think Fisher's really deals with that because Fisher sees this as a failure of will. Yeah. And, um, and I can totally see now, I mean, it's clearer to me what your um, qualms are with this essay is that it's not so much that he's wrong in his identification of this problem, this cultural problem within the left, right? This, oh, he's this, completely right, which yeah. is why I published the essay. I'm right. like, like, I published this essay. Right. But he's not put that out there. But he's not but, a, he's not explaining the problem as a Marxist would, right? Because he's ignoring I mean you're doing a very material reading of a lot of um detailed things that are going into um why his vision of the left is kind of reductive and and, and just sort of and, and not explicitly even Marxist, right? And so yeah. I can I can totally see why um, people I can see why people on across the political spectrum are attracted to the to the argument that he's making and I am as well I have to I have to kind of out myself here I find just on the argument he's making about identitarianism I find very compelling um, but I do understand that your um, critique of the way he goes about making it is actually a really valid one as well um, he's not really proffering uh, an alternative here which brand doesn't either interestingly if you watch that whole video and i'll put a link to the video in the show notes as well he keeps paxton paxman keeps um oh sort of demanding well what do you want to replace it with and he has like no sort of uh, actual solutions involved it's all very ide- right. it's idea driven like you know do how do we want do we want our nhs do we want yeah. How are we going to fund this? Um, the, 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 the part that I always questioned, and I questioned this when I was an editor at the time, I circled the second rule, and I was like, maybe because, maybe this is hard because it actually is. Yeah. The second um, rule is uh, make thought and action appear very, very difficult. Okay? 
Right. It, it, maybe it is actually very, very difficult. The, the thing is, it's not impossible. Now, there's a tendency to turn the systemic stuff. Um, there's a, a, a magazine, cultural magazine, wrote Antifa is liberal, and liberal is this big swear word on the left. It always, you know, no. If we call you a liberal, it's worse than calling you a conservative devil worshiper. Yes. Like, it's. Um, and, and like people who aren't uh, initiated into the ways of the far left are very confused by this because it was a slur for us forever. Yeah. Um, well, and when, so many, in so many people in America think left and liberal as the same thing. Right. And right. so that we don't have that language anymore to even to make that distinction. Right. And, and to be fair, liberalism in America and leftism in America strongly overlap. One of my big things that brand is, is critiquing that is used as a weapon is strategic, Strategic centralization and standpoint epistemology. Um, yeah, the, I hate both those things. Yeah, and you know where they come from. Even though they're used by liberals, they came from Marxist feminists in the sixties and seventies, reading a Marxist called Lukash. And like, like it's Marxists hate it probably more than anybody else, other than like rabid, you know, National Review conservatives. <laughs> and like, we are kind of why it exists. Yeah. You actually, in your response, you um, cite Donna Haraway um, and so the, um, situated. Uh, what is it? Situated. What is it called? What? Is, how did you? What is the term? I, it's slipping my mind right now. You're asking me to talk about a, a, no, no, no. a, a essay I wrote five si- years ago. Situated knowledge. I, I just looked it up, and so yeah. uh, it's a, sort of a better uh, solution to these uh, to the intersectionality kind of approach to things. Oh yeah. Because in the, since the nineties, intersectionality has assumed three things and, and this is part of who he's fighting against. Now, now what's interesting about, about, and I find this hilarious, but deeply problematic is these ideas are born from the American Academy. They go to they go to England, which has a different notion of class and race than we do. Like I used to talk to Fisher and Pavel about this. That like they don't understand race the same we do the same way we, we do either, right. and they don't understand class the same way we do in America. And, you know, Americans are always in denial about it, but even as Marxists, we don't quite see the same things as British Marxists when we define this. And Again, that's a um, material reading you're making, though. It's a historical material right, reading. Right. right. There's reasons why. Yeah. Um, and uh, But they take our theory and apply it to British society, which is nuts. And then even Tory governments make laws around it where they never have legal force in our, in our society, really. Yeah. So it's like it's kind of a nightmare scenario. And, um, I mean, I totally think that, that – um, you know, I'm coming down hard on this now because I think there's a tendency to celebrate this essay a little bit more than it maybe deserves. But can I say um, I think it's because it's been adopted by people who I know you have a lot of not disdain, but but mockery for. I mean, the whole Jacobin DSA crowd I know is not your crowd, right? And that's yeah, the, no, that, well, yeah I mock <laughs> them on a regular basis. Yeah. Um, my, my one interaction with Amber uh, A. Lee Frost was her telling me to be nicer and also to forgive Sam Chris, <laughs> um, <laughs> who wrote one of the responses to this, because he's taken it back. And you're like, you brought that essay, you know, Amber A. Lee's like, you were partially responsible for the Vampire Castle essay. How can you feel this way? And I'm like, you don't get why I like this essay. <laughs> and, and yeah, you're you're right. There is a sense where this has been adopted, but – but my my also point though is that those politics were implied in this too. Yeah. Like they're not. It's not like they cynically adopted it. It really is kind of the politics of this piece. It's just that at, I think at the time, 
I mean, God, you, you, I think what broke me, this was around the time of like cancel Colbert. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I was just thinking about this recently. The, he made some sort of, um, joke that used uh, like a, a play on Asian language or something. And there was this one person who wanted to Louis Park, who ended up becoming a Christian <laughs> church lady. I believe I can only just laugh. I, um, <laughs> Uh, but you know she was she was making money. I, I was shocked. She was bragging about uh, Sui Park was her name. She was bragging That's about making right. four thousand dollars a day and taking break from that to get Colbert canceled. But the whole point of Colbert making that joke, which what which was ironic, it was ironic racism. Again, ironic racism isn't always okay. Whatever. But um, he was making a joke about the erasure of Native Americans. Yeah. Yes. And what you know, I remember the irony. And I was like, look, you know. We have what is objectively the richest minority in America silencing the poorest one to make a point about people of color. I don't really know how this works. And this is what, and I was thinking about that. And then, like, Pavel told me, hey, you know, remember all this stuff? This, this comes up. So, yeah. So, but let's go into to this more, more often. I think. What I wanted, what I liked about the session, I'm not going to go what I liked about it, is yeah. not only what it critiqued, which I think is important, but it did want us to put thinking about class back into the conversation. Because I remember Occupy, for all its weird neo-anarchist bullshittery, you're going to have to blink me out again, sorry. Um, it's uh, It was about class in some ways. It had a very rudimentary notion of class, like the 99% versus the 1%. That's, you know, Manichaean in a way that's not particularly helpful, but at least you were seeing it again. And it got bogged down in this very quickly. Yeah. Um, And I gather the DSA has, too, in its recent, like, explosion in membership, explosion to 35,000 people, but uh, in in its explosion to membership. But that is an explosion for a far left group. Well, sure. (laughs) The DSA is not really a far left group, but... Well, yeah, um, but but this is what I'm saying. I think, though, that the same thing has been re- replicated yet again, right? And that's one reason this essay is very interesting and, and compelling. Um, I agree, but the, the other thing about the DSA is you have to understand that there's also the 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 Brands and Fishers fighting with the Mies. So there's two wars going on. I see, I see. The you, okay, like, the me is in they, Derek Varn. Okay. <laughs> not me, like I'm not in the DSA, but there's people who, there are people who are kind of on the far left of the DSA yeah. who share my opinions about the way we think about class, fighting with people who want us to be, to want us to use the Democrats to, to change things yeah. through like work guarantees and stuff. Yeah. Um, no, my point so that's a two front battle and what's weird is is just like in this essay we're fighting the identitarians the 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 chapos and the varns of the world are united (laughs) what's doing is we look at each other we're like what's your problem (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) you know i mean and i admit that the, the the absurdity of some of you know, this was before Black Lives Matter was really big. And I, I, I want to talk that, about that case study for a second okay. to really bring this out. Um, Black Lives Matter was is seen as a racial justice thing. And it is. But the class nature of BLM changed. So BLM, when it's dealing with Ferguson and Maryland and those issues, is very much a, a working class or lower phenomenon. 
around 2015, it starts moving into universities, and weirdly, it starts with Mizu, which is kind of a a working Mm. middle-class university, but moves very quickly into elite liberal arts institutions, Mm -hmm. and the nature of the rhetoric changes. Mm. That's interesting. Um, The nature of what people are arguing about changes. It becomes about policing um, what people say more than stopping particular instances of police violence, and you see it like very quickly. I mean, today I shared an article about Black Lives Matter, you know, having an art exhibit at sponsored by a police station. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, my, my point in my critique of this, even when I wrote it at the time is like, look, like these identity issues are tied up in class and these class identities are tied up. Are, are, they're not the same thing, but they so overlap that like you can't ignore you can't you can't separate them out cleanly but you have to treat them as kind of semi-discrete overlapping things yeah like being working class doesn't mean you're not going to be a racist but it does mean in general that you have more overlap with um people of color and interestingly enough while um i think the recent study says that Black working class people feel racism as less of an issue. They still see it as an issue, but they see it as less of an issue in their life than black middle class people do. Hmm. And that, again, kind of makes sense because economic issues are not as immediately pressing for for black middle class people. So what's stomping them down? It's racism. Yeah. And, you know, both systemic and personal. And so, like, well, and, that and- you have to deal with. And, and Fisher, I mean, he, I think he's right on the money here. Um, why have these two configurations? Um, that's the neo-anarchism and the, uh, what was the other one? Oh, the vampire castle itself. Uh, why have these two configurations come to the fore? Uh, the, the first reason is that they have been allowed to prosper by capital because they serve its interests. And, and I think that you're, uh, you're on to, uh, an example of that with the examination of the attitudes in, um, working class versus middle class, um, black people. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, and it's, it's it's one of the reasons, for example, that like Adolf Reed said uh, you should support Bernie Sanders, even though he eventually endorsed Hillary Clinton. Adolf Reed, um, a kind of Marxist political economy guy, um, but kind of semi-sympathetic to kind of labor liberalism. Um, and he, he said that, look, like more black people are going to be helped by a works program that serves everyone and won't get racial tensions than one that is reparations and is fair, but will immediately trigger racial tensions that w- that the works program would also fix, yeah. but not trigger the tensions. Which one would you pick? Yeah, like just from a practical, you know, tactical perspective, if you were interested in the betterment of black lives, well, then maybe not making everything totally about race. You know, you know, which is not to say it isn't an issue, and I often wouldn't say that either, even though he's accused of it. Yeah. Um, I think there's another good paragraph that you can look at. I mean, you know, what can we do now? First, we can eject ide- identitarianism. I actually agree with him, including identitarianism for the working class. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's your addendum, right? <laughs> that, yeah. That you're speaking. Uh, recognize there are no identities, <laughs> only desires, interests, and identifications. Well, I do think there are identities. The, 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 the It's actually something weirdly liberal about his notion that, how that you can choose your identification because – like I can't even even as a positive one, you know I I'm a multi ethnic background. I'm part Jewish. I'm part a lot of things actually. Right. You know, um, and I know that my skin color is white. 
I don't identify as white. I am identified as white. Yeah. I didn't make that choice. Yeah. And nor could I undo it. And so I do think that in that, that answer is somewhat just not really true. Yeah. But I do think identitarianism is dumb. I mean, like, like, um, I mean, for one thing, for example, why I always thought it was interesting. Nixon, who started the Southern strategy was also big on like supporting black power, um, first initiatives. Why was he doing that? Well, you know, I'm not saying Nixon was a, was particularly racist for, you know, a, a 50s liberal, which is what I kind of think he was. Um, but I think it was that there would be a limit to the power the black community could ever generate of its own economic accord because of its size in America mm. at the time. All right. So that in a way, you don't have that material basis to pull from. And pushing for that actually is in, in, limiting you know, um, and it's, you know, of the same reason why, like, you would see and still see for even now, like, you'll see, like, um, alt-rightists talk, sometimes say things, nice things about the Nation of Islam or the new Black Panther Party, or, like, mm-hmm. um, you'll see, you'll hear about um, Elijah Muhammad and Malcolm X talking to the Klan in the 50s. It's because there's a certain relationship there, and we should reject that, and I also think one of the things that got lost in this discussion of the working class, other than the fact they don't vote, is the working class in America is majority white, but barely. Yeah. And race is not immediate is not as an immediate an issue for it. I think in a lot of ways, it, those workplaces are a lot more integrated. Um, yeah. You know. Well, I mean, I, I I used to work in you know rubber factories in Akron, Ohio, right? And so yeah, I mean, I totally saw that that's a, a space <laughs> to use an academic term uh, in which you know these sort of racial boundaries break down uh, in service yeah, of, I, of a more class based one for sure. When I worked at Geico, or when I worked as a you know as a as a pizza manager or as a as a prison guard. Most of my colleagues were black. When right. I became a teacher, that changed. Right. Like I, I mean, I get it. Yeah. Like I see those things. I mean, ironically, one of the one of the things I pointed out about Black Lives Matter is when it moved on campuses, it moved on the elite campuses in particular. The it's actually a weird proof of the racism in America because the, the people who go to those colleges are so much richer than even their right compatriots are. Yeah. That they're even more removed from a class standard, but on average, I, and that, um, he's saying that. I mean, that's a problem. That I mean, there's a, a, a disproportionate um, degree to which class issues have vanished in service of these uh, moralizing identitarian issues. And honestly, that's why I get so I got so irritated. And it's kind of lessened a little bit with all these. Oh, look at these college students today stories that are going on. That's nothing like what happens on my college campus, right? I mean, my college no, we're mostly com- <laughs> we're mostly commuters, and everybody has jobs and, and they're barely paying for college and we they're service all elite colleges, absolutely right? I mean, that's, like, here's the thing like those things don't happen on like 90 okay. percent of colleges that stuff never happens i wish and, my students would do things like that i wish they cared enough yeah i mean like there are there are there are subgroups that do it and yes they make dumb mistakes i mean here's what i've said recently like a lot of the campus activists are stupid kids who are pri- come from semi-privileged or semi-privileged backgrounds they're also stupid kids yeah I mean, like, I know it's not cool to call people. It's prob- someone's probably going to say I'm being ableist or something. Yeah. Prove 
um, Fisher's point. Yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah. but um, which is why this essay is still very interesting. Yes. But and I, I don't think people are dumb because they're kids because they're kids necessarily. But let's let's like be honest about where we are in the world in our lives right now. Like kids don't kids are particularly sequestered. I mean, you know, I teach high school. They they're sequestered in a very real way and more than they have been in the past. Mm-hmm. So expecting them to be able to speak cogently about social justice issues that they are just encountering or having anything like a cogent definition of justice. I mean, even the idea of social justice to me is irrelevant. All justice is social. Um, I mean, it's <laughs> it's irrelevant and redundant. Yeah. Um, so Did we like, mentioned Derek's a Marxist. All right, go ahead. Keep going. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Um, so, you know, like we, we are in this, this time where we're judging these kids making dumb mistakes. But I mean, like, um, part of me is just like, well, I used to get really annoyed by this too. And then I came back to America. This is a sad note about me. I was in Korea when I, when this essay was written and then I moved to Mexico as it was being published. Um, I was so removed from the American left at the time I was, I had gone into, I had gone to occupy in New York and, and, um, in California because of a fluke of being able to, because of my job, Mm -hmm. I was, I had to go do some business, um, for my university in America twice. And then, so I would get to fly for free. And when I was down there, I would go and see all these political protests and they did kind of strike me as nuts. Um, but um, I really saw kind of an interesting thing going on there. And then I would go back and, and watch what was going on in um, like Korea where I was on the ground on an everyday basis and learning to speak language and working with like trying to help people, you know, people. I mean, Korean unions are particularly militant, by the way. I mean, like mm. they, they, they are not they are willing to street fight. But the. um the thing to think about about all this is I was looking at it from the outside, mostly from the media, social media landscape that I saw this stuff getting worse and worse on because it's social media. It is far worse. It is more like the elite college campuses because oh. those voices are loud and they're rewarded for being loud, even if they're being c- argued against people. I mean, the irony about Fisher and I and a lot of people arguing with these identitarians is we get them more clicks, too. Yeah. Yeah, so much true. so that like like today there's uh you know there's Chinese dress at the prom gate, um sure <laughs> you know and even China even uh, some Chinese Americans and a lot of Chinese people are coming to defend this teenage girl who just don't know what she's really stepped into, and uh, I was just thinking like in a world before social media there would not be articles on the Independent about this yeah <laughs> well, because, because Twitter yeah. would not have gone on one of its shame rages and then its counter shame rages which then everybody will read and because they want to read about themselves it'll get picked up by a media outlet which will again spread it again um, like manure on a field yeah and um, I mean th- and that's like. I feel like this article, this article was a tempest in the teapot when it came out and then it kept on coming back up. If you look at it, it gets referenced more after 2016 than it did before. Yeah. And look what's going on at that time. Right. I mean, this is the, right, yeah. the division. I mean, it this kind of, it was buried in leftist discourse, right? Which most people ignore. Um, and then it, during that campaign, because of Bernie Sanders, it gets uh, co-opted into sort of more general politics and, and more and general then, political And then discourse. unfortunately Mark dies. Yeah. 
I mean, the, the background to this story and what breaks my heart. I yeah. mean, I miss Mark. Yeah, let's get into the, the aftermath of this. Yeah. All right. So, God. So there is a committee of five of us. Um, one Trotskyist, one Maoist. Me, I'm whatever I am. Um, a I consider myself a Marxist without adjectives, but people call me a Varnist. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, uh, one... Um, one per, one anarchist actually who one and uh, he's ironically for all the attack on neo anarchism was the anarchist who really got the peace going, and um, one left communist, and we're sitting uh, and left communists are people that Lenin made fun of in a pamphlet for people who don't know they're like they're left communists yes we have our right left and center too it's just so far out that you don't even understand what we're talking about. <laughs> it's fun <laughs> to watch is, though. Huh? It's fun to the watch, Marxist, though. <laughs> yeah, the Marxist center is to the left of Stalin. So, like, <laughs> um, just to put that out there. Um, so we we uh, we sat down and we commissioned this piece. Some people leaked that this piece was going to happen on Twitter and back channels. Um, Pavel, the guy who commissioned it, and I ended up stepping down in a month. After this is released, we get flooded. I pick a guy named Michael Wet uh, Wettenwald at who worked at um, uh, a university in New York City, who became the the infamous anti SAW prof and was the la one of the last three guests on Bill O'Reilly. This is how he went. Oh, wow. But he was writing for this ultra left communist journal at the time, called and he defended Mark um, and Jody Dean, who is kind of a a, a a, a media theorist who's kind of sympathetic to Stalin, um, but very popular in the Zizek crowd, defended Mark. Sam Chris, who defended Mark now, denounced him. And um, so anyway, half the staff breaks off. The journal puts around, can hardly keep itself open, and then turns itself back over to Louis Pro Projek, who is the guy who we kind of wrested it from. Why the journal came into being in the first place, it was, uh, you know, it was about a new politics. And we were trying to, the North Star was a project by Peter Camejo, who ended up taking a bunch of Marxists into the Green Party, and nothing ever happened of that. <laughs> because, you know, there's a long history of that, too. Um, yeah. But, uh, um, we were trying to ring this up, and we were trying to be multi-tendency. All the strange leftism we're gonna have, a, we're gonna be able to say and have an open debate about this. This article ends the ability for that to happen. Um, someone calls me a Zionist, which you know, and an anti-Semite, <laughs> which is interesting. I'm neither of those. <sighs> um, I don't hate myself, nor you know. Um, are that part of myself, nor do I have a particularly a particular love of Israel or any particularly disdain for the Palestinians, particularly now that I've lived in Egypt and, yeah. you know, have taught um, Palestinian refugees. I, I, it, that 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 was a wound that hurt then, and it kind of still hurts. Um, and uh, man, um, we leave because Mark gets harassed bad like really bad 
on the grounds that um, he's insensitive um, or racist or he's a homophobic. secret alt-right. he's a secret basically alt-right wasn't alt-right existed back then but it wasn't the catchphrase for it but right. basically they called him a, a crypto neo-reactionary which would be like us saying you're a secret alt-rightist yeah um that he never really broke from land that he's trying to destroy the left um but they proved this point on the way that it actually played out. Read, the, it was read, the, read the comments um, after the article and you'll get a good sense of this. It, it was heartbreaking. And it goes on for like they mess with him in his real life. All right. That I know. Um, he does some interviews about it. We, you know, he shows up on some shows and then he goes to work on his book. His depression gets worse and worse and worse. And he took his own life last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and it broke my heart. Um, whatever political disagreements I may have with Mark, he was gracious to me, even after we, you know, I mean, like, even after I was on the editorial board, uh, you know, of the book company that he helped found and then got basically sort of left slash got ousted from, um, he was always gracious to me. The man was kind of infinitely patient um uh this drives michael michael rettenron the professor at nyu he was studying secularity and the left and he was saying you know that we don't need to take french lyceism as our background and we don't have that need a super strong anti-religious um point of view which of course i'm sympathetic with i'm talking to you absolutely uh, um <laughs> so um and i'm grateful know, I, for it you know I said the the funniest thing about the rabidness of uh, of um, Soviet anti-religion is the the worse the rabidness was, the worse the religious reactionary was. Reason was as soon as the Soviet Union wasn't there anymore. Yeah. yeah. So the more suppression of the church there was, which is you get closer to Moscow, it was heavier and heavier. The more likely there was to not just be conservative religion, but like like virulent conservative religion. Um, and, uh, you know, Michael started having issues. He was harassed by some of these same people. He then, you know, d- did this internet troll thing that a lot of people do that end up on the right where he's exploring these ideas and kind of half defending them. He's also in itinerary review. He says he gets chased off campus. I actually know he was on sabbatical. Um, and he goes on uh, Bill O'Reilly twice and then writes for the American Conservative and now is a regular and a semi-regular guest on Turkel Carson. Hmm. And uh, um, my friend Pavel um, starts reading Nickland uh, actually to find out what you know what was in this you know that Fisher that people were tarring Fisher with and converts to Landian thought and gives up on the left entirely and starts advocating for like, you know, basically eugenics programs and, um, move, he moves to a different, he leaves Britain after this. Um, he, and as far as I know, he only comes back to visit. He doesn't live there anymore. Um, and, uh, I get tarred and feathered. Um, I get called anti-trans people. Uh, I get told I was a liar. I get I get um, told I was a coward for not publishing things under my name when I was in Korea, even though there was an anti-communist law that could have got me um, uh, deported on site. I mean, they weren't likely to do it, but could have, so I was careful. 
Um, and uh, I, I uh, end up defriending a lot of these people and go into seclusion myself, watching several of my friends become very, very far white ring. I mean, like when I say right, I mean like Michael Rettenwald is the, the least um, of the two who went. The other one, I think most people would consider not rightist now. Hmm. And um, I, I come out of the far, well, not the far, far right. I was never a racialist or a Nazi or anything, but I come out of the right wing, which people don't, you, you know that, I think, but yeah. most of your listeners probably yeah, don't. You said you were a, a paleo conservative. Is how I was a paleo conservative, yeah. Yeah. Um, like you're William F. Buckley type, right? No, I would say <laughs> I was more of a, I, really, I was more of a, uh, an America first type. Okay. Um, 1930s style distrust, big business, distrust war. Okay. Um, kind of sympathetic to libertarianism, but not that sympathetic, but I was also kind of a moron. <laughs> um, I've told this story on another podcast. If you want to hear that story about me, you can listen to Thaddeus Russell's unregistered podcast where he asked me about it. But, um, but I come out of that milieu myself. So, of course, people attack land because of my back. I mean, attack Fisher because of my background and lands coming up because of land. And then two people involved basically turn sides. Um, the journal, Dario, who's in another area, I haven't mentioned him yet. He, he, he can't deal with the stress. He founds another magazine called Ritual Magazine. Um, he doesn't stay there as an editor. He edits one issue and quits and I think goes and runs off to Europe and kind of just chills out for a few years. He was Canadian. Um, and I don't think it has anything to do with it. He gives the, the, uh, the, the editorial ship back to uh, project who is the, the original funder. We give up on trying to do a multi-tendency blog i quit writing about left topics for two for a while i quit doing podcasts on it for a while um and uh and then you know things start to rebuild and then i said mark fisher dies mm. and um i don't you know i don't know he was chronically depressed all life i'm not going to say this is why it happened but i can for sure say this did nothing to help sure um, I mean, in Fisher, I see a man who really, really wanted to see something beyond the oppressive elements of capital that he saw. And I don't think he ever saw it. And some of that may have been his personal struggles. Some of that may have been political with, with the way, with my interactions with him, it would be very hard for me to make that call. I didn't know him in person. I just corresponded with him for, for years. Um, but it, like hit me like a bricks when he died. Um, and, uh, he died right after the election of Trump. He died, you know, when Corbynism was picking up steam and failing. And, and in some ways, like he was seeing his ideas vindicated, but also, I mean, in another ways, not, they weren't being as fruitful as he'd hoped they were. Right. You know, and it was, it was, it was if you add to that clinical depression, it's just got to be really hard to deal with. I, it's, it. I mean, this story just ended up being so, so hugely tragic. And he wrote one more book after this, but it wasn't published in his lifetime. He wrote many. I don't think he wrote nearly as many articles, um, and whatnot after 
the vampire castle piece and it was cited a whole lot and was a flashpoint for for about six months after it happened and then it kind of fell back and like i said you started seeing it being referenced more and more but disconnected from russell brand so what you see actually being referenced is the first half of it when you go back and read people talking about now they read the the first half of the essay way more than the second half yeah um and i don't know i i find myself really torn about it i think in a way fisher's legacy is in that there actually is more of a class base left in both the sense that i would mean and the sense he would mean than there was in 2013 and definitely than there was in the aughts yeah um you know like marxism was almost gone in 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 the aughts um when i was in college i did not meet a marxist sure really. uh, they were all like post-marxists or deridians or you know lack of like well, what was it? not Lakatosha, uh, Leotardians or <laughs> whatever, you know, all those, all those Pomo guys. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, and Zizek was fighting against Pomo and that was like, he was like the lone major Marxist voice and he was really a Lacanian and all this kind of weird stuff. And for those of you who don't follow either leftist jargon or weird academic jargon, you're probably completely lost. Um, uh, most people probably heard of Zizek though. Um, and, yeah. And he's who's a hoot. hated by the left. I mean, he's hated by the left now too. He's been denounced as well. He's been chased out. Yeah. Which is, yeah. Over the issues that Fisher, Fisher kind of talks about and also kind of saying that like, it doesn't matter if Trump wins, but well, yeah, but, <laughs> but does it, I mean, I think it's a fair question. I mean, to put so much, uh, I mean, well, I mean, I don't want to get into that and I certainly don't want people to you know, ruin my life either. But, uh, but I, I do think that it's worth questioning whether Trump's offensive of it's of our style. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's offensive style and that it more is of substance policy wise. It's not significantly different than any other Republican or probably yeah, most Democrats, particularly now that Bannon's gone. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And what's, what's weird about Bannon is Bannon, Bannon for all of his evil alt-right, super racist mechanisms, however you feel about that. Yeah. Um, was really skeptical about war. Yeah. And actually, kind of had a pro um, Keynesian economic policy if he could have got it through Congress. He loved Lenin. Um, he loved. Yeah, he loved Lenin and he loved Keynes actually, which isn't surprising. Lots of fashy people love Lenin and love Keynes. But yeah. like, um, I mean, I mean, I'm actually being serious. About no, that. I know, I know. Um, but. Uh, you know, like when he got ousted, I was like, oh, this is the old Republicans are going to come back. Just like the old Democrats came back during the Obama years, like sure. immediately. Yeah. And when now we're uh, bom- strategically bombing Syria, you know, I mean, and so, yeah. yeah. I mean, um, so, you know, my, my point is maybe like, yes, the executive does matter on the margin and the margins do affect human lives, but it's just the margins. Like the apparatus of the state is remarkably consistent. Sure. Um. It's offending and, uh, our ideals. It's offending like uh, metaphysical ideas of America than it is any kind of practical functioning of America. Oh man, the the uh, re- the 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 making the legacy of George uh, of Shrub <laughs> harmless. I, I couldn't is you predict it though. The most depressing thing <laughs> that I think I have ever lived to see as as one of those rare leftists who is over thirty five. Yeah. Yeah. There aren't many of us. Right. We don't tend to last this long. 
Um, there's a there's a weird gap, um, Danny. If, if you've ever if you've ever been to a the DSA average member, this is funny. Until last year, the average DSA membership um, was seventy. The age. The age was seventy. Oh wow! <laughs> so, like, the people who joined in the eighties who are like old trots who survived you know, and social democrats who just survived the, the the nastiness at the end of the seventies left. They were the same people who were still in the organization. Yeah. So if you go if you go to leftist things now and you know this is kind of like church again. Um, <laughs> That's what's in my it's, head it's right like now. Yeah. All it's all like twenty somethings and eighty year olds. There's like nobody in the middle. <laughs> I mean, it's more extreme. I mean, there are families that go to church. There are not really families that do leftist stuff. Once you hit like thirty five, you're not really back in until you're eighty. Yeah. Well, in church, it's like there's something there for you until you graduate high school, and then there's nothing, and then you come back once you have kids of your own, right? And, and so you do have these this. Uh... Yeah. So the age the age difference. So, so basically, church picks up the people that that aren't at the leftist meetings, except yeah. for the old people who you know <laughs> are just split. But um, I mean, it's it's that element of it's really fascinating. Um, and that is something that I did think that Fisher spoke to that spoke to me even at the time. I mean, I was technically in my, in my early thirties when he wrote that I was 33. Um, but, uh, the fact that the left had nothing to do with, with like middle, middle aged working class people that the kind of activism that it requires of you, um, and this is true even for some of the stuff on his form of left. You can't do when you have kids in a full-time job. No, oh, yeah. I mean, it's why... Unless you're an academic. <laughs> exactly, right? Yeah. Which is where the, about the only place that survives and something that he complains about in this essay as well. Um, because yeah, it, yeah. academia warps the things that it actually talks about and has this tendency and of he, He's not wrong, but I also like, but why did that happen? Right? Like, why did that happen? And I don't think he got to the root of the problem and um i mean he was a shot that we needed though i mean this thing only seems more pressing it only seems like it's gonna be more pressing it yeah. i mean right now i'm not gonna offend your liberal listeners but all they seem to have is to be able to complain about russia yeah well i <laughs> You know, I agree with you on this. Um, they don't really have anything else. And even if Russia was guilty of everything we possibly imagine that they are, when I actually doubt they're guilty of everything, um, they can't. That's not a positive politics. No. And it's still no reason to lose the election, right? I mean, if that's true, then I think I read this somewhere, and I don't remember where. That that means that some 16-year-old kid named Sergey ran a better campaign than Hillary Clinton <laughs> did. You know what I'm saying? And so, yeah, even if that is true, it's still no reason to lose an election, right? Um, well, I mean, but here's the against problem. that candidate. If I was if I was a Mark if I was a Mark Fisher now, I would be pointing out that why is it that even the like. Like even the DSA is very weak in non-urban, non-young areas. Sure. I mean, they don't have it. There, no one's going out to like small town. Like I'm from the small town south. Yeah. And this, I think, this is why my perspective. This is another reason why Mark spoke to me. Yeah. Um, because um, because I'm like, no one's give a shit. I mean, I'm sorry to swear so much on your show. Yeah. No one gives a crap about <laughs> us. Um, 
I'm just going to let it slide this time and see if I get in trouble. I don't know. Um, no Forgive me, folks. Yeah. About I'm always on explicit text. My problem is that I have to publish this tonight as soon as we're done talking. And so I won't have time to edit it. I promise I'll keep Derek in I, I didn't say anything time. too bad. I've hit the S word a couple times. Yeah, that one. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, no ab- one gets it's a abjection. No one gets a though. Like when, when unionism failed in the South, the AFL-CIO has only recently, I mean, like recently in the last 10 years, tried to build anything there at all. Yeah. Because the public sector unions were were made illegal from the outset. What happened in Wisconsin was was this was the status quo in most of the southeast. Sure, right. If they if unions are legal, they can't strike. Right. Um, and uh, that has been a huge a huge factor. So when I was trying to fight, I, I tried to unionize my, my you know as a as a TA making a thousand dollars a month and getting taxed on it. Um, I tried to like unionize to at least get health benefits. That's all I wanted. I didn't even want to pay ways. I just wanted health benefits. Like yeah. I wanted health benefits. Um, and I was told that I would get expelled and that I would go to jail. Yeah. And when I wrote the AF, the, the, um, the NEA and the AFL CIO to say like, aren't you going to at least try to lobby about this? You give tons of money to the Democrats. That's all you really do. Yeah. And they're like, it's, we only give money to the Democrats as a lost cause. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> and if this is because you were at a state school, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, and I and, was yeah. like, "Are you kidding me?" Yeah. Like th- this is one of the poorest areas in the country, and you're not gonna fight for us because there's not enough Democrat. Like, and what was even weirder about that is in the South, even as late as when I was in grad school, we we're not talking the odds. I mean, you know, I'm 26 when this is happening. 25, 26. Um. The, the Republican dominance is so new that all the city stuff is still run by Dixiecrats. Sure. So it wasn't even true that the local apparatus didn't have Democrats there. They were just conservative Democrats to the right of most Republicans, but they were they were still there. Yeah. I mean, it, there's this weird thing about about the Clintons that people, you know, about their woke language. But part of how they stay so influential is they still have control over those Southern Democratic machines, even though they're largely black now. Yeah. The, it's the same machines that, like, Strom Thurmond came out of. Sure. Um, yeah. And it was maddening because I was like, you're not going to – you're not even going to try? Yeah. Well, like, and I got to say, this is something that's long frustrated me. Um, the sort of, you know, the intellectual types that Fisher's uh, really haranguing in this essay, I, they tend to have this dismissive view of anybody, of, of places that aren't Brooklyn, right? And so coming in, living in academia for as long as I have now, like I detected it even in grad school, like there were places that people would not apply because they just couldn't imagine living there, right? And I I went to a conference in Scranton once uh, when I was in grad mm-hmm. school and I thought it was a fine place. I mean, I, I think I said at the time, I, I wouldn't want to visit, but I wouldn't mind living there. I think I sort of, um, yeah. Scranton seemed like a fine place to live. And um, I met some faculty member there who uh, was really unhappy and said, I'm moving to Philadelphia and I'm just going to commute two hours a day um, because of the culture that uh, of with these working class and um, not only, but ethnic diversity as well. Like there's all this prioritization on ethnic diversity but it's still within a very narrow class definition um yeah i mean like these people aren't moving to where i live in the barrio or where like um i'm like look 
like this used to make me angry. I remember and this is in the right after um I think in the Bush years and it came back up when uh Trump was running like oh if we just kick the south out and all that. Yeah. And I was like, look, for those of you who are talking about how racist everyone is, you're kicking the <laughs> objectively you're kicking minority majority parts of the country out of the country. Yeah. Exactly. Like your utopia is portland and vermont yeah exactly like come on yeah um yeah i'm from i mean i'm from cleveland right and so i mean i i grew up i mean in the last several years that i lived in cleveland we lived in a pretty diverse neighborhood and went to a pretty diverse church in inner city cleveland and people that have these moralizing opinions about identity that that fisher's talking about would never live in those kinds of places because yeah, it, <laughs> and, and conservatives throw it at us all the time like oh those rich liberals won't send their kids to black schools and guess what it's true they don't do you ever listen i mean everyone should sit and listen to love me i'm a liberal uh the the uh the the great uh, uh phil oaks song i mean i think he's writing in the 60s or singing in the 60s and i think he's nailed it right on the head um yeah yeah, I mean, and that that that's another part where where that this this speaks to me. What 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 I think we really have to seize. What I think is positive to seize on this is like one of the ironies. And he doesn't talk about this irony, but it's true. Is that a lot of these uh, a lot of these policing of of um, race and of race issues only helps a very specific subsection of those groups. And um, that I mean, like one of the ironies of the Obama years that conservatives throw at him, but that are also I mean, that conservatives throw at him. But that's also true. Objectively, the Obama years are some of the worst years for black people. Absolutely. Um, and that's not Obama's fault, but it's also he didn't fix it. And like the idea that and this is where the I, I'm really sympathetic to Fisher on this privilege stuff. The idea that checking your privilege does anything about systemic privilege and systemic accumulations of wealth because that's a racially driven class issue as much as it is any race issue. It's not about white people just hating. Like the thing the, the most pernicious thing about that, and you can even get this from reading Kimberly Crenshaw, that you know, the founder of intersectionality, is everybody could stop being individually racist tomorrow. But the systems that are set up would function pretty much the same way. Yeah. Like, because there's such a, not a income gap, a wealth gap that is perpetuated in compounds that you can't just fix. And it, and it, it's what drives a lot of the negative outcomes for African-Americans in specific. Now it doesn't mean that white people aren't racist or that class makes it go away. Like, this is where I'm a little bit sympathetic to them because like, like particularly as you go up the class ladder, racism actually becomes more of an issue, not less. But at another in another way, like Fisher and Fisher's completely right, and that this is a distraction even from those issues. Like once you have once you have uh, I brought up Black Lives Matter, you know, a while ago. Well, once you have Black Lives Matter, um, moving from trying to stop cops from killing black people. You know, and I mean, even black cops, that wasn't the point the, 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 when they were talking about systemic racism, it wasn't just like the white cops of, yeah. I mean, Maryland was, bla- was, was black cops because the, the, what set them up is, is redlining. It's all these systemic things. Um, once you move from that to policing 
access and vocabulary, you have moved to the concerns of one class, which is very immediate, to another, which is all about respectability. And ironically, it buries the concerns. I'm not saying that, like, these, you know, Ivy League black activists don't care about Trayvon Martin. All right? They do. Yeah. But it, it, it that, that doesn't – in some ways that doesn't matter because what they're policing is what affects them more and what affects them more are tiny things compared to these very real people getting very rarely killed. Microaggressions, yeah. And, yeah. And, and I think it is true that in some cases – I'm not I'm – not, I don't want to um, make too big of a statement. But in some cases, I, I think that they take these causes up about real people as if they were purely symbols, right? And, and not real people, right? And, and so I think that it's, again, we're, we're talking about metaphysical sorts of arguments rather than material ones. Um, right. I mean, um, the Black Agenda Report, which is uh, all your lefty inclined. If you want to hear people to the left of me, Black Agenda Report is run by a bunch of old Black Panthers. Hmm. I mean, Bruce Dixon is, you know, he's an old Black Panther, no longer in the Panther Party, has nothing to do with the new Black Panther Party because he considers them racial, racialist reactionaries, okay? But okay. Um, he talks about a lot of this stuff and about Afro-pessimism and the, the, the religious nature of making the black, pe- the black person the eternal victim and how that, that is itself this weird racist trope that, pe- that plays well for white liberals but isn't – and he's right. And that's the complaint against Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, and particularly yeah. with that last He was essay. attacking Ta-Nehisi Coates, actually. Yeah. yeah. Explicitly, he said Ta-Nehisi Coates had made Afro-pessimism, which is a very specific kind of postmodern-y black identity idea, and and rendered it more popular in the popular liberal conscious, and has made Ta-Nehisi a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> um. And um, I'm not saying that everything Ta-Nehisi Holtz, for example, was you know accused of being too hard on Bernie Sanders. And I mean, he was he was actually a Sanders supporter. I mean, like, so I'll give him some some credit for some things. But the 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 larger issues there aren't wrong. If if your identity is made to be nothing but victimhood, and victimhood is seen to be a way, and I know I'm going to sound like a conservative on this, <laughs> victimhood is seen as ennobling in and of itself. You don't really have a political project where you can change your situation because what ennobles you is your very victimhood. Yeah. And that, I mean, and Fisher goes back to Nietzsche. I mean, that's the original point that Nietzsche was making with the whole God is dead and he's been going to be replaced by something worse, right? <laughs> Christianity. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So, you know, sec- secular, I, I mean, Nietzsche kind of saw that secular left, he, I don't totally agree with this. And I also don't think he's totally wrong. Secular leftism was all of the worst elements of Christian resentment. And none of the benefits of Christian community, uh, you know, um, and I mean, I, I personally see that I, and I also see, and I I think this is deeper than just the left. I think if you look at like the way the moral majority right worked, it was the same resentment. Yeah. And it was also largely secularized. Like the embrace of Trump to me indicates that the the religious vision of the Christ, uh, of of evangelical politics is gutted. Oh yeah, uh, <laughs> you got no complaints about that for me. Um, I mean, you know, you guys yeah. have if you have to embrace that, if the Cheeto Benito is what you got, yeah, you are you know, you're in bad shape. I mean, like. And well, it's funny because I think the person who, hard, who hits on that as hard as like me from the outside would is actually a Christian conservative, um, uh, who's on your on uh, one of your sister shows. Oh, um, is it who, Coyle? 
Coil yeah, Neal? Do- yeah, Coil. Coil hits on that a lot. Oh, I mean, sure, yeah. Co- you know, uh, City of Man is the other show that, yeah, that City of Man, I, which I, I actually listen to, even though the liberal on that show often infuriates me. <laughs> um, Ed Song's a good man, but uh, but uh, <laughs> well, he seems like a perfectly nice gentleman. I, I wouldn't put all the liberals in the gulag. Um, most of them. Um, um, but you know, there's a countervailing tendency, though, in this, and this is what I talk about with workerism. And maybe to wind up, I think everything in this is true, but the danger is rendering class just another idea, just another identity, like anything else. Yeah. And and that's not good either. Like, there's no, like I think that's where the stuff like the white working class, you know you know redneck allergy as a positive politics came up even though there's not a lot of truth to that they they didn't vote trump in they don't vote yeah yeah people with alcoholics in in the deep south are not known to have the foresight to vote but they but they have the confederate flags they 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 present in such a way that it really gives us something to tweet about right uh, and so that that's why they're such a, a target um and, and it's a misplaced our target are, are, it's a it's a it's a co-constitutive identity though because like one of the weirdest things about the obama years is i actually saw i'm a, you know i spent i spent over half my life in the semi-rural south and i saw the confederate flags drop a lot mm-hmm um, during the Bush years, they were almost unpopular. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, and during the Obama years, at first you saw a little bit, and then a little more. And some of that was right resentment to a black leader. I completely, I, th- I actually do think it's true. But some of that also, I really think was these people who 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 are who are in some ways really are losing everything. It's not just that they're oh it, you're just they're just losing their privilege and now no. I mean, like the stats are that they're dying at just as much a rate as anybody else. Um, you know, uh, the other thing I saw was some of the same, the shaming of the opioid epidemic recently. They're like, Oh, that's yeah. a white problem. That's where everyone cares about it. No, it's not actually it's across the racial boundaries. Yeah, that's, that's right. But, 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 you know, white people are the people we saw first, um, because this isn't crack, I guess. Yeah. But this, um, ge- this gets to Fisher's fourth law though, the essentialization, right? Well, and he's the way he says it, while fluidity of identity, plurality and multiplicity are always claimed on behalf of the, the vampire castle members, partly to come up, cover up their invariably wealthy, privileged or bourgeois assimilist background. The enemy is always to be essentialized, right? And so therefore, if you've got a guy like that, then he is, Reduct, reducible entirely to uh, and just a uh, irredeemable racist, right? Deplorable, right? A deplorable, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, and I'm not going to say that the the white and I'm putting quotation marks up that your audience can't see, but the white working class it doesn't have its deplorables. I mean, it totally does. I know many of them. <laughs> I'm related to some of them. I'm related to a lot, yeah. But I'm related to both sides of this conflict. I mean, like, it's weird. Like, you know, my, my I, I, I did ancestry. I thought that all my, uh, all my ancestors were fairly new, and I discovered one branch that had both sides of the Civil War on it. And I was like, oh, this is awkward. Um, but, but it's also very true to my lived experience. Like, you know, one of my. One of my grand, one of my grandparents is of color, and the other one of my grandparents was a clans person, and they weren't. I mean, different sides, different families, but like, yeah, um, like that's the that's the world that I come out of. I know sure. both sides of that. 
and uh, I saw more racism, low low key, but more in some ways more affecting people out of that. Mm-hmm. And even in people who would shame other people for racist views, like they would they would shame people for their racism, or they would say like, "Oh, I remember that the, these." Um, people with MFA were getting their MFA with me and they were from like, they were from Ohio. Like we'd never see, uh, you know, like a white bar and a black bar. And I was like, cause you don't have enough black people in your town for there be a black bar. <laughs> like you're not wrong. You're not wrong. You know, um, there are places like that. That's absolutely true. I mean, in Salt Lake city, like most, of, most of the African Americans here have, have the same accent as locals because there's no community for them to have set up the house. Have, have I mm-hmm. mean, like, and I mean, some of that's progressive in some real sense, but some of it's really not. And mm-hmm. like, it's just ignored. It's not talked about. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it is amazing to me, you know, that Fisher hit on that because his context in Britain doesn't have the same dynamics, really. There are very different dynamics on racist stuff going on there, but it, it feels like this works very well in America. Yeah. And a lot of, I mean, I suspect, I guess I'm not an expert on this, but I suspect just from basic th- based on things I've read that a lot of the race issues are kind of about recent immigration patterns more yeah. than, um, you know, the slave era is where, you know, and we're, we're talking and, about. And there, there are complications of that. The diaspora in Europe is more conservative than even like, if it, like I remember the most time when I was in Egypt, the, 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 the most I ever saw of Nakabs for for those of you who don't speak Arabic or um, full, what you guys would mis- mistakenly call burkas. Okay. Um, uh, burkas actually cover the eyes too. Okay. Nakabs don't. Um, Nakabs was at the was at the airplane coming from Paris. Mm. Seriously. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, more of the really radical. I mean, I knew members who were for. I, I knew people who were for sure in the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, but more of the really radical people who like scared me. We're almost all um, would come in and they were from other countries, usually, and we're staying in Europe. Mm-hmm. So I, I mean, like, I get why that stereotype exists. Um, I, I remember I was talking to an Egyptian, um, an Egyptian Muslim woman, and uh, she laughed and she was like, "You know, the funny thing about ISIS is this, is it if it's it's largely a a war zone or a foreigner problem." Hmm. Like, like it, it gets people outside of these contexts, not in it. Now, Egypt actually does have its own ISIS problem from making the Brotherhood illegal. Yeah. But uh, I, I, to get into way, I'm not going to get into that. That's way more complicated politics than we have time for here. Sure. But, and I just to say, my old pastor, um, he's Jordanian, and, and he's told me similar things actually about that. So. Um, yeah, I mean, like, yeah. but I think there is there is some some like. I'm not saying that the that the the right wing in Europe is 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 legitimate in the way it feels, but I'm I am saying that there are things that are going on that make the response uh, make sense, particularly when you throw in all this shaming. Yeah. On top of it. Well, and and that gets to the the problem with essentializing, right? There are very complex realities that people have to live, and it's easy for us outside of those contexts to shame them based on style points and and you know. It's a form of cultural capital in a way. It, it I mean, is like knowing much. knowing how to, like even keeping up. Just, I'll say this, you know, to speak woke language, but leaving America for eight years and coming back, I actually, even though I'm pretty fluent in leftist discourse 
have trouble with what terms are okay. Yeah. Even from nine years ago when I left. Right. And like, like, the thing about my poor dad, this guy, old guy from West Virginia who's like 78 years old now, right? Um, he still says colored people, right? Because that was the term they use. Henry Louis Gates's memoir is colored people. That's what it's, that's the name of the memoir, right? Uh, who's also from uh, West Virginia. But and so that's the term he still uses. And, and uh, like, I can tell him not to use it, but I'm not going to, yeah, uh, there's a point at which I'm not going to shame him, right? You know, person first language. Yeah. But also you're like, but these things don't necessarily make sense to someone who comes from a different context. And I mean, I'm not going to defend all of it either, but no. I, I just think you have to, you have to like, people shouldn't say to, that, but my dad's going to, right. I mean, I mean like also like, I remember when African, when, when you couldn't say black, when, when I, when I was in college, when I was in college, yeah. black was seen as disrespectful. Yeah. African American was the was the phraseology, and now African I go back and forth because I I always kind of feel uncomfortable about which one, but black feels more honest and like, um, it, it's interesting those generation gaps, right? Yeah. Um, those are cultural capital gaps. Those are those are those are kind of a class and 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 privilege issue themselves. You have the privilege to know it. Uh, that's straight up. Pierre Bourdieu. I mean, this is what he's yeah, talking <laughs> yeah. about. I mean, it's just applying it to our own theory. Yeah, exactly. The thing about leftists is they're really bad at applying what they apply to everyone else to themselves. Exactly. Um, <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. Well, Derek, um, I was hoping to keep this at an hour, and here we are at two. Uh, <laughs> so we, should, we should stop. <laughs> I do thank you, though. This has been so great, and I, I really particularly appreciate the, the personal um, story. I mean, I think this essay is, like as you say, uh, infamous in its time, becoming, I mean, proving itself to be evergreen in terms of its relevance. Um, but apart from that, there is a real human story behind it and having yeah, a little bit of insight has just been fascinating. And it's and just incredibly moving. sad. <laughs> it's totally moving to me. And, and I, I really do appreciate you, you know, taking the time and being willing to share it with us. Um, so yeah, um, I will, uh, like I said, put the links to all these on the show notes. Thanks for, if you're still listening, uh, it might've taken you a few more car rides to get through this one, but um, hopefully, <laughs> it, hopefully it was worth it for you. Um, as always, just go to sectarian review podcast.com uh, to find, the links to all of our shows and everything that we do and um and and derek you're easy to find if you just you know google derek's name almost i think every podcast in the world you're on is that is that pretty much it uh, that may be increasingly <laughs> i think there's two yeah um i'm on all the zero boats podcasts there's several um i am i've been on that is Stevens, which is kind of a right-wing podcast, weirdly. Yeah. Um, I am on uh, From Alpha to Omega. I'm on – I guess I keep on showing up on Christian human shows, mostly yours. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, there's going to be a weird story about, like, how did you end up on all these <laughs> religious shows, Barn? Um, well, this is my, you know, my idea about limited coalitions, right? I mean, we there's a lot that I personally share. Obviously, we have a different metaphysic, right? Um, uh, but uh, there's also ultimately going to be a point with which we will never be able to agree yeah. and, and still hold true to our values, right? Right. But 90% of the way along there, like, I you teach me a lot and, and you make, you always challenge me and I, I appreciate that more than almost anything. Yeah. So, yeah, I appreciate talking to Christians cause it's nice to, it's nice to have sectarian scrabbles that aren't mine. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, also, and also I'm actually sincere about this, that, um, 
I, I think I'm doing an appearance in uh, October with like Peter Rollins and some of the postmo Christianities to talk about Jordan Peterson. I don't know how I really got into that except for knowing Douglas Lane. Okay. And I I find that my even with very very conservative. I mean, when I say conservative, I mean like Russian Orthodox Christians. Um, that I find that I tend to learn a whole lot from engaging with that about how our thought process in the post-European kind of post-liberal world that we are in got to be the way it is. Even though I think there are, are material reasons for it more than like theological ones um, that you can't ignore that. And like, I think, I mean, for my personal opinion, like if people were kind of better Christians, my politics would be a lot easier. So, I'm not going to say one of those stupid things like Jesus was really a commie. That's so acronistic as to be stupid. But yeah, I, yeah. I do think like, yeah, there are essential values differences. But like capitalism and Christianity, I don't see how they mix. I don't. Well, well my very, so. the last episode before this one, if you want to just go back one in the queue, if you're not a normal listener, uh, we did a show about Oscar Romero. Right. And I think it's a perfect illustration of the the you know again a limited coalition between two seemingly opposing thought values and frankly i mean leftism fits with christianity to me maybe this is uh, being out there a lot more than liberalism does um and so um in as much yeah. as well and we can go into there another day um yeah, yeah. but anyway <laughs> nice talking to you and yes. i hope your uh listeners enjoy this long very um, places obscure <laughs> rant. yeah and derek will be back uh shortly in the next few weeks i think to talk about uh his book of poetry and what's the name of that poetry book apocalyptics it's- and it deals it actually explicitly deals with a lot of christian themes although i'm not a christian so i'm very interested in the engagement yeah, um, I'm so, very yeah. interested in reading it. I'm gonna um, uh, grab it here very quickly and then uh, and get through that. And I'm really looking forward to talking to you about that. And uh, we got some more movies to talk about down the road, Derek. You're always welcome back here, though. It's been great, been great talking to you. Have a good Bye. one. Bye. <laughs>